doing it live. Fuck it, we'll do it live. Yeah. What, is, what does that mean? Play us out. Sting to play us out. What does that mean? <laughs> well, I don't remember where we left off last time. We, we took a detour from Trade Wars or Class Wars and started talking to Brandon about his book. So that was a nice relief, but I think I think we kind of left everybody hanging on this book. We've talked, I don't know, four hours, five hours on this, and we didn't really get into the uh, meat and potatoes of the China material, which they, they reserve for the end of the book um, on Chapter 4 from Tiananmen to Belt and Road. It's, it's probably the most interesting part of the book, though, um, in terms of what we're interested in, you know, and, and have talked about on the show to date um, on Chinese-American relations, on the, the nature of the Chinese state, you know, uh, this question, is it capitalist? Is it some strange form of socialism? Is it a deformed worker state? Is it state capitalism? And we get, we don't get a hard answer on that question here, but we do get some insight on the operation of the bureaucracy and how it protects certain privileges at the uh, disadvantage of its, uh, you know, its, its people's welfare. Uh, primarily workers and retirees. Um, so there's there's a really, I think, insightful story here about what role the bureaucracy plays in China's growth model, uh, for better or worse. Um, for Pettis and Klein, it's much for worse. I think their, their account of their surplus-driven economic model, um, really, you know, the shoe's going to drop soon. I think, and and unless there are major changes, you know, primarily for returning wealth to consumers and increasing demand um, through household consumption, debt is going to continue to pile on and the Chinese economy is going to suffer the worst for it. So there's kind of a social democratic Keynesian type solution that they offer, which we which we touched on before. But I think the point of tonight's discussion is to provide an account, as far as they do anyway, in how China became a surplus-driven economy and when things really started to change. Uh, after the Revolution 49, obviously, there was a period of you know pretty thoroughgoing change and, and uh, uprooting of former social relations. Um, so it's, you know, the, the you know, colonialism had been, you know, added to the waste bin of history, essentially. And, and we talked about that in one of our newsletters about the celebration of the, the centenary of the Chinese Communist Party and how important that was. Uh, but what they focus on here is the period 30 years after, you know, about 30 years after the revolution, when Deng Xiaoping comes to power. Um, comes to power is kind of a weird way of saying it, but when his, his administration or his uh, regime began, however you want to say it, there was a market-type revolution um, socialism with market reforms, and that's where the story begins here. So um, I, I don't know if you want to provide any other context about how we're going to discuss this tonight, but I think those are the those are, that's that's kind of the the place where we have to begin in discussing in in any discussion of of China's current economic model and picture there. Damn, dude, that was a really good introduction. Wow, I, I don't know like, where it came from. Super I, I tired. Mean, it was uh, you know exhaustive and. Just gave me the proper way to start. I think you should get paid for this. Yeah, yeah. Well, there is a way. There is a way to pay us for yeah, this. Yeah, yeah um, we'll we'll save that for the description. No, but you're right to say that the way you began, which was Pettis and Klein, um, 
view this growth model, this basically this you know low wage export growth model as basically becoming exhausted now that China's reached a point at which it's going to have to kind of convert towards a more consumer based economy. But much of its, you know, production, much of its investment has been sustained by a huge debt overhang that mm-hmm. is going to be both an economically and politically difficult model to undo and then have to reorient their whole economy because of the, as you know, you, you were pointing out, it not only is it lead to this huge amount of debt at about 300% of GDP mm-hmm. um, at, where we stand right now. But um, it also involves a kind of class dynamics in which there's a nexus between the central authorities and provincial party leaders who um, basically are the conduit towards putting investment into infrastructure and big projects, which has basically been the basis for the establishment of a kind of elite throughout the country in different you know, provinces, different lo- localities. And in some way, you know, not that we really know a ton about Chinese, you know, society or politics, but you could see that um, that is something to do with the with why uh, Xi Jinping began um, his administration with an anti-corruption um, series of anti-corruption probes and um, you know targeted Boji Lai and there was all that stuff. So that's mm-hmm. just to give an indication of you know how fraught and um, complex this um, issue can be. And I would also just, you know, add to, you know, your introduction, the fact that um, in that longer telegram that we discussed, uh, you know, a couple months ago, that's precisely the the node at which the American foreign policy elite is going to try to target the Chinese is fissures within the leadership and within the ruling class of China to try to break Xi Jinping's leadership away from Provincial elites who are probably more um, feel more of a gravitational pull towards um, international markets and not uh, not pursuing a more aggressive Chinese foreign policy. But um, Pettis and Klein basically take a kind of approach that looks at different um, phases of China's growth and um, immersion into the global capitalist system. Looks at Deng Xiaoping's reforms, the beginning of a kind of legitimation of markets as a part of. Um, a socialist system, and we should also talk about as we go through it, how they basically, to use the terms of this um, woman who's written a book recently, Isabel Weber, right. um, how China um, avoided shock therapy, which is basically a much more gradualist approach towards marketization and you know creating from the periphery and then to more core industries, establishment of price signals and, and uh, market liberalization so that a kind of depth in market relations could be established in their economy and they could put the state could be involved in using the market for you know long-term political and social goals basically getting the greatest amount of efficiency out of markets as opposed to shock therapy which basically pulls the rug out from under makes it the core orienting mechanism of the society which for a society that's based on these previously like kind of maoist principles of you know, just industrializes a, a, at a um, fast pace or as fast a pace mm-hmm. as possible. Can ha- create conditions in which very efficient and in- inefficient industries are coming onto the market. Which, with, for the, for many of the cadre who were reforming after Mao, they they realized that they didn't want to create a situation in which, you know, say a steel factories that have been very inefficient producers throughout this period would just create you know, cost and price spirals that would lead to, you know, very destabilizing inflation. 
And so that was a big, you know, fear and one of the things that they used to guide them to avoid or to justify a more gradualist approach to reform. Mario was saying this chapter reconstructs China's economic history through four phases. And the the history that we're talking about is from Deng Xiaoping onward to the current period. Really 2019, there's a question of how much of this material should be revised in light of the pandemic. We can have a discussion on that. But the real focus is on how China became a wage suppressed growth model. Wage suppression being the sort of pivot around which surplus accounts could be developed and the export capacity or excess capacity of exports dumped on the rest of the world by their account, some way that they would talk about it, and how this has created an imbalance that is not just unhealthy for China's development with debt piling up and wages being suppressed to the detriment of workers and retirees, but this imbalance has repercussions throughout the world system. The interstate system, have, as we've talked about, um, much to the you know disadvantage, I think, of relations between China and the U.S., uh, which could come to a boiling point as they have, uh, like in 2019 with Trump's quote-unquote trade war against China. So it's, it's a short step from those kinds of ratcheted-up trade war circumstances to something that could become more militaristic in nature. So it's important to understand how China got to this point and what it means for relations between China and the rest of the world, primarily with the imperialist beast to to the West. Why don't we start with this first phase, which they call reform and opening up? Um, you know, it's the, the marketization, the soft, maybe, maybe you would qualify that, but the soft liberalization that Deng Xiaoping opened after um, some some years after Mao had passed away. Yeah, I mean, Mao had, you know, left the country in pretty um, dire economic circumstances, um, despite the, you know, breakneck speed of, you know, industrialization. And obviously, for, you know, um, many Chinese disastrous humanitarian circumstances, you know, tens of millions dying through many of his experiments. But it's important to recognize that during a lot of those those um, trials, I think China was growing at like five percent. So you know, even in, during the Great Leap Forward, when you have like twenty million people dying, the, the country is still growing. As opposed Mario, to, Mario yeah. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna let you read the little black book what? of communism on air here. I'm I'm not. <laughs> what are you talking about? I mean, it's it's true. <laughs> and I, I'm also finding a little a little uh, silver lining for you there too. I mean. The, yeah, there was still the, economic the growth. growth. Yeah, thanks. So you know they they could transcend it and push through to the to the next level, but um, um, you know reformers who had you know basically either come back to power or you know recuperated themselves after Mao's death, um, found a country with a per ca- per capita GDP on par with like Haiti. China's share of GDP was about five percent of global GDP. Um, so they obviously recognize that in order for them to be able to compete, to be um, anything, to attain anything like the status that they saw fit for such a big populous country, they were going to have to modernize and step up and um, acquire the technology and investment that the rest of the world had to offer. 
And of course, right. they notice that the nature of the, especially in the 80s, they've recognized that the um, competition between the United States and the USS, USSR was shifting in the favor of the United States pretty definitively. And we're, t- and we're drawing lessons as they start to, you know, reform about how to avoid certain decisions that the Soviet Union was making. So, um, you know, the first thing Deng Xiaoping does is make it, you know, give legitimacy to discussing and opening up a debate about the relationship between markets and socialism, that the two could be mm-hmm. compatible. Yeah. And that, that starts a, you know, kind of larger um, debate about what course to take how to use markets to to harness, you know, increases in productivity and greater efficiency, right? Um, so first they start to relax laws around agricultural production. And yeah, is a quota system, right? Right. So Isabel Weber has a pretty good account in, in this book. She's just, uh, I think, published in the last year, how um, China escaped shock therapy. Mm-hmm. And it's basically an account of both, an, I, I haven't read it, but I've watched a lecture of hers. And um, it's both a kind of, intellectual history of these reformers, um, basically under Deng Xiaoping's wing, um, who are both, many many of them have studied economics in the United States, but they're basically responding to the conundrums and um, problems left by the Maoist period. And to put it in more of like a kind of, in Marxist terms, and, and in many ways, the, the nature of the debate at the time was, you know, Maoism jumped, jumped forward too far into, you know, revolutionizing the relations of production, which is to say, before um, advancing, f- you know, factory technology, they started to live under the kind of control and command of communes and, um, you know, socialized relations between, uh, uh, you know, agents within the economy. And what China now needed to do was actually, you know, take a step back and um, take advantage of all of the advances in technological development of the capitalist world and fit those into, you know, the, the, the communist model that, 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 that had already been in place during the Maoist period. Now, of yeah. course, as, as these reforms develop, they don't, they don't then go back to, you know, a communist, um, communist relations of production. But this opens up the, you could say, the um, sieve for a kind of gradual deepening of marketization. And where it first starts is the agricultural communes, right? So while there were a central command quota system through which communes would, agricultural communes would produce a certain amount of, say, grain and then be paid in money for that, the... Um, Authorities began to allow for a devolution of production towards households in which they would meet a certain quota, be paid for that, and be allowed to sell their surpluses on an open market. And that created a kind of peripheral market system that allowed the you know price mechanism to take root um, and take root in a way that was both not damaging or not disruptive of the overall command structure, but also create a form of market interaction that was deeply rooted too. That was very successful and, and apparent and successful, you know, pretty straight away so that they, by the early eighties are thinking about how do we bring in the industrial economy into a, into a market system as well. 
Yeah, that's right. I think there's there's important historical context be, behind Deng as a figure historically that maybe Weber gets into. I haven't read her book either, but I did listen to her interview with um, uh, Bunga Bunga Cast Alpha Bunga Bunga, which I uh, thought was excellent. They've also put out a book recently, but in any case, um, you know, Deng is a figure of the Cultural Revolution in sort of a negative sense, in that he was exiled from the party for his activities as being, you know, kind of a capitalist revisionist. Um, and I think he was exiled to a tra- tractor factory for some some period of time. You know, he he took advantage wisely, I think, of the the kind of the thaw that was happening within the party after Mao's death, and you know, these the the opening up uh, culturally of new ideas and kind of an exhaustion that intellectuals and and many people in the party had, frankly, with. The Cultural Revolution. So combined with this, you know, the material facts on the ground, and and the fact that there, you know, there was there was not enough growth to sustain what would become a demographic bubble, you know, a growth bubble in time. There had to be some new approaches to this, and I think the combination of this cultural thaw, um, the material reality, and Deng's his savviness as a political figure, and and you know, resurrecting himself in the ranks of the party after Hua Guangfeng, you know, had just kind of proven himself to be a little Mao, you know, the what I think they were called the whatevers and, you know, whatever Mao says is what we do, the whatever faction. I think all of this stuff combined, Deng was kind of the right person at the right time. There was an opening up for him to play this role. And in a way that wasn't, you know, a complete 180 on Mao. You know, it wasn't we were opening up to capitalist economics. It was it was just, you know, we have to get away from this autarky. And there was precedent for it, I think, with the new economic policy uh, under Lenin and, yeah. you know, in having some kind of, you know, survival of the revolution moving from, you know, a change in social relations to a change in the the means of production. So it was never it was never posed as a as a as a path to capitalism ever. It was always market reforms for the purposes of the survival of the Chinese communist uh, state. And and I think um, it's important to keep that in mind as well, that it was never posed as a, you know, as a, a full-on liberalization. So that cultural factor, that political factor involved, I don't know if Isabella talks about this, but I think that may be a, an important component of how China inv- avoided shock therapy. Yeah, I mean, they, did, they, they didn't want to you know, go the way of what would happen to the Soviet Union, and they weren't prepared for the party to disintegrate. And so they wanted to, to do it in a way that would, you know, both preserve the steering mechanism and control that the party had, and attain the all of the forms of national power and efficiency and autonomy that trajectory of development would, would create. Yeah. But of course, you know, the, the other thing is that along the way, it wasn't as though they just purely had this gradualist idea to begin with. This is a thing that um, Isabella Weber, you know, emphasizes is that at various points, and, you know, Tiananmen is a perfect example of this, um, they started to, to do things a little bit more like shock therapy that led to lowered living standards and social unrest. And so a yeah. kind of, you know, two steps forward, one step back kind of a dynamic ensued. And they, you could say overall, had this sort of gradual dual system approach as they tried to manage modernizing, creating more efficiencies through marketization while maintaining social stability.
All right, so phase two. Obviously, phase one is bookended by Pettis and Klein with Deng coming into power, leading this market reform period beginning in 1978-79 and culminating in the Tiananmen, what they call the Tiananmen debacle. So um, this would be June 1989, where price inflation and the denigration of the iron rice bowl, as we say, um, was being challenged by students and workers. So there were some growth pains, right? So obviously, this wasn't easy for everybody, this market liberalization, even in soft form, compared to other shock therapy examples that we have in Western Europe. As Dang said, um, some people will get rich before others. There you go. So there's an idea there. I mean, that part of, you know, there has to be the stratification again. And it's, it's, it's a modernization. It's a modernization on socialism, but it's something that the state would tamp down on. The state would always be in control. The Communist Party would have control over the circumstances. And I think Dang in some ways brought to life the recommendations of an American, I believe a Russian-born American economist named Alexander Gershenkrin, who gets... Interestingly, uh, some focus in this book. It was a surprising citation, but I think he was a Harvard economist who wrote in the 1950s, wrote an influential paper called The Economic Backwardness and Historical Perspective, which described a growth model for non, I, I think, for non-capitalist economies like the Soviet Union, China, where Japan to some extent, I mean, obviously not a non-capitalist country, but there are some lessons here for a paradigm of the state intervening in the economy to shift investment away from households into the state and create attractive investment opportunities for uh, from foreign investment, right? Foreign investment opportunities to help create the industrialization and the backbone of growth necessary to sustain, you know, GDP, you know, growth on, on GDP that we, we, we see outside of five, six, seven percent. So I, I'm, I'm kind of garbling uh, what, what Gershenkrin's paper is about, but I think that's the important piece of phase two that helps us describe the next phase of development. No, totally. I think that's right. I mean, you could say that Gershenkrin's responding to the neo, a neoclassical, you know, unanimity about markets is that they can, they're only going to be established and be efficient and sustain continued growth if there's stable property property rights, you know, a credible, reliable legal system in order to back right. that up. And of course, you know, um, a stable financial system with which to funnel um, investment in a rational way. And if that is, right. if that's absent, or you know, even if it's um, or if it's or if those things are in very primitive forms, as they, you know, um, are in developing nations, um, then the state can direct forms of allocations of resources to build badly needed infrastructure and manufacturing facilities and give a lot of the um, major, you know, um, sort of institutional kinds of investment that will be conducive to a profitable investment from foreign companies um, into, into these areas, especially if they have a disciplined workforce, which was definitely the case in, in China. Yeah. You know, this um, is basically a way for non-democratic, non-capitalist countries to overcome whatever disincentives that um, 
international capital would have in investing. And that could enable those countries to acquire the investment and technology and expertise needed to um, compete and to um, improve the lives of their citizens. Um, Now, you could say also that this establishes, you know, the sort of parameters in which coastal cities and um, foreign direct investment and the and the sort of free trade zone parameters start to be put in place that allow China to take off um, according to this growth model. It's also when, despite improved living standards, the beginning of improved living standards, by the 90s, you know, that's a whole, you know, let's say 15-year period in which um, living standards have continued to, to improve while also um, setting in, in place this dynamic in which Chinese households consume smaller and smaller smaller shares of China's economic output. Right, right. You should get out of that creaky-ass chair and get one that doesn't make so much noise. This is so much less creaky than the other one. I just moved around too much there. (laughs) Okay. Well, another another condition for, um, you know, ensuring this trade surplus was the uh, maintenance of a, you know, peg to the dollar that kept the renminbi or the yuan devalued mm-hmm. and the hard there was a hard peg from 1994 to 2005 with the Chinese yuan becoming progressively devalued and this happens right during I mean if you think about it 1994 to 2005 that's a period of tremendous economic growth so that the yuan is being kept at a low level all the while China is making huge strides in productivity gains Right. So and it's the valuation of a currency usually has a relationship to, you know, how productive that that nature, that state's economy is. All the while, China's Chinese consumers are producing less and less of a percentage or quantity of all the things that they themselves are producing. So it's really bring setting in in tow and deepening this dynamic, which, you know, had started by the early 90s. Yeah, well, you have a you have a stat here in the notes, which I think is important to to note as, and we have to explain how this happens. But the share of Chinese GDP consumed by uh, consumed by Chinese households fell by fifteen percent between nineteen eighty and two thousand ten over this period of rapid productivity growth and growth in in overall GDP. So the one way to account for that is, yeah, of course, that the the, the export model is is gaining steam, surpluses keep going up smaller shares of the overall GDP, but by absolute volume, they're increasing. You would think that this would all be offset and transferred into the pockets of households in China. But in fact, what's what's happening is that yuan is being devalued even further to keep exports more attractive. And one mechanism through which that happens is the accumulation of foreign reserves to the tune of, I think, $1.9 trillion between maybe 2001 and 2008. Around the time of the recession, so you have this period of rapid surplus growth, hand in hand with offsetting this 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 account surplus, this current account surplus, with an outflow to the United States in the form of bonds and bills. Um, so that's I think where the, that 1.9 trillion dollars was held it was in Treasury bonds essentially, and it's an alternative, right? And and, and you know you take historical paths that China could have taken, right? It could have gone into the pockets of households, rising wages as a result of these productivity gains, or it could have gone to the ha- into the hands of manufacturers and to financial elites in China. And it turns out that's what happened. Of course, it wasn't contradictory. It wasn't 
opposed to this growth model. In fact, sustaining these these increases in percentage of GDP over time was predicated in large part on the suppression of wages and increasing foreign reserves. So I I, I just want to I, I want to give a sense of how wage suppression happens and where does that money end up, right? Yeah. I mean, so it's like, you know, a, a com- Chinese company A produces exports to sell to the United States. They sell them. They receive dollars, right? They give those dollars to the Chinese central bank in exchange for renminbi and they pay right. workers they pay for workers that, that right. right? And then um, the central bank decides, you know... Um, to use those dollars to buy sovereign debt, um, then that's one of the th- that's one of the major you know strategies they use. That gives them a number of advantages. One, that debt acquires interest. Secondly, um, having a huge reserve of dollars um, helps facilitate more trade because all trade you know eighty five to ninety percent of world trade is done with the dollar. It's a source of liquidity to buy imports if you're in an emergency. And then, of course, like we were saying before, it has a you know, purchase of T-bills has, a, has an effect on the actual price of the dollar. And so it maintains a, um, the relationship of the dollar to the renminbi and keeps the, va- the do- value of the dollar up um, and maintains a, a lower renminbi, cont- maintaining export competitiveness for Chinese-produced goods. So that was basically yeah. the pattern followed, you know, through the, well, really, in some ways even today, but full-fledged till 2008. Well, we're going to talk about phase three now, which is really where a lot of problems start to emerge in the Chinese economy, right? We're going to be talking about debt, piles of debt, the problem of debt. It's been something that the the Chinese bureaucracy has been trying to control lately, right? I mean, you know, quick recap, phase one is from the uh, the emergence of power uh, of Deng Xiaoping and the market reforms that he implemented uh, between about, you know, 1978-79 through 1989 with Tiananmen. The second phase is a period of rapid growth, industrialization, people moving from the countryside to the city, um, it's what they describe as the, you know, the China growth model, uh, wage suppression, the suppression of consumption in favor of high savings. And this stage three is really the uh, the story of the early 2000s onward to the Great Recession and how uh, the Chinese bureaucracy dealt with the recession. And as, uh, you know, a product of um, the, the markets, you know, foreign markets like the United States consuming less, buying less exports, being in a position to do that. China had to shift its investment towards uh, the domestic market with infrastructure, housing, etc. But the real problems that begin to emerge from this picture, right, are related to how China is is funding these infrastructural projects. And and much of it is uh, through debt, right, debt financing. You know, in 2008, 2009, uh, the CCP is starting to respond to the collapse of external demand with ramping up domestic investment even further as opposed to shifting towards household consumption, households consuming what uh, Chinese industries produce, and they took debt financing as an alternative as well to scaling back production, which would be you know a problem in itself for causing too much unemployment. And then you have the issue of labor unrest. So this is how Pettis and Klein frame up this story of rising debt in China. So, so Mario, why don't you take us a little bit through the highlights of 
uh, this stage three from high investment to over over investment and um, maybe some of the lessons that you take from it in in an IR perspective? Um, well, I don't know so much about if you know how much of a maybe we can come to the IR aspect from a, like a longer outside view or whatever. But I mean, the, one of the basic things that happens in the early 2000s is you could say the full introduction or integration um, of agricultural yeah. um, and rural labor that is fully absorbed into the manufacturing sector. Um, this is called like a, a Lewis transition, which is, you know, a principle in macroeconomics and economic history in which societies start to integrate rural labor that usually leads to an increase in, you know, the labor income or the wage bill in the society. So like if you always have agricultural labor on the periphery and you always have basically in, like something like in Marx's terms, the um, reserve mm -hmm. army of labor on the margins, then that's always going to be able to keep wages down. But when you have full integration of laborers, um, an industrial workforce or as wage laborers, even as agricultural laborers, you have, you start to have an increase in the amount of an increase in their wages, right? And so that's something that happened in the United States basically in, you know, the thirties through the new deal right. and, and post-war boom basically. Right. And so that really basically happens in, you know, by in China by 2010. And so these, we still have these holdovers of the yeah Huco system. How do we say it? Huco system, and real wages. Even though we've talked about how you know small a percentage labor gets compared to all the value produced and this low wage growth model, real wages doubled from 2003 to 2010. So that's an indication of this you know this in full integration of rural laborers into the general working population. Now, in order to also sustain this, though. They had to continue their high level of investment and um, credit, uh, or rather, um, infrastructure investment, which is something that by the you know 2010s began to have diminishing increases in productivity. Um, and so, as they used this model of basically doubling down on investment um, in infrastructure after 2008 they substantially contribute to the debt burden such that now debt is 300% of GDP in China. Yeah, I think it might be a bit lower than that after some of the controls. And, and I think there's some debate about how much of this is actually represented on the books. And maybe some of it is is not recorded. But uh, the latest read I, I saw was about 278%, which isn't, you know, a much starry or... Uh, you know, outlook. It's still, uh, you know, Himalaya of debt. Pettis and Klein tend to be pessimistic. They think that there are all these, um, you know, uh, inducements and um, incentives for party apparatchiks to, to basically lie about how well capitalized firms are and how um, efficient they are and such that basically the debt burden is probably higher. That's what they think. Right. And I think they make an important point about how GDP is treated as a um, as an output as opposed to an input where there is actually a target goal of GDP, which speaks to the legacy of a plan to collectivize the economy of reaching a certain target. Um, and and these, you know, these small bureaucrats and local uh, apparatchiks, have you, as you said, have to hit those targets or else. Right. So there, there is, I think, a natural tendency towards misreporting. I guess 
in other political systems, you would treat GDP as a, either basically something like you know a, a given or a kind of sphere of spontaneous economic activity. GDP is um, set as a target growth rate that represents you know um, a, a goal that's needed according to certain social and political objectives. Right. right. It, it, they um, they critique that. I mean, I think they have good reasons to critique it, but to me, it doesn't sound terrible, right? I mean, it sounds like you can plan to a you know, to growth. And that, that seems rational and, and a very good ambition. So what is their, what is their critique of it? Why is that such a, uh, you know, what, what's the, what's the downside to that model? That it creates these incentives for this nexus of party officials and, you know, the banking system to, um, depend on each other basically. So an entrenchment of bureaucratic interest and privilege to move money around, hit those targets where it's it's counterposed to what Pettis and Klein are mentioning as a solution, which is shifting those dollars, uh, rather shifting that investment to households when um, there's overcapacity. Right. Um, and, so, and they also think that the Chinese um, financial system is pretty unsophisticated conduit for channeling investment. Local governments aren't subjected to hard restraints. And they can, you know, they can make things look good by engaging in seemingly limit, limitless but non-productive or not not productivity-enhancing economic activity. And because loans are basically guaranteed, banks don't have to write down loans made into those projects. It doesn't matter so much that investments are worthwhile. I think is is one thing that they talk about. It's really what matters is the quantity of spending generates enough reported GDP to meet government objectives. And, and that means sometimes, yeah, investments are going to go towards uh, non-optimal, um, you know, opportunities. And I think they, they connect this idea, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's connected to this notion of an optimal, uh, what is it? Investment optimal level. investment level. That's right. And, and I think they, they mention that every country has sort of its own optimal investment level. United States is going to be different than China. It doesn't matter necessarily how much money there is floating around. It's how much that can be absorbed productively into the economy, given the resources and development of the, uh, the economy in that particular location. So could you, could you explain that a little further? Well, it's like skill level um, education and um, uh, technological resources available. It seems, I mean, it's, it seems a little unbelievable to me that China has reached its optimal investment level. I mean, we, we, we talked a lot about, uh, you know, Mabubani's maybe optimistic perspective on the level of mm-hmm. education in China, um, the, you know, the opportunities that are available there. We're talking lately about this tech, um, you know, with, with super con- uh, semiconductors, the tech warfare that's happening between the U.S. Mm-hmm. and China. And I think if you look at the, you know, the, the percentage of semiconductors that were produced in the United States, South Korea... Um, in Japan, right, I think are the three main locations. And you compare that to how China has grown its investment and output in those areas, maybe not at the optimal levels that you would see in the U.S. or South Korea. It has grown and taken a larger share of the market Mm -hmm. um, for what is, you know, possibly the most sophisticated technology in the world. So it's it seems, you know, I don't know enough well, about this concept of optimal well, investment. Well, more, more, more um, investment could go to that, and um, that would be f- f- probably fine. That probably both will happen and will, you know, in many places succeed. It's the issue of overall debt to the whole GDP that seems to have reached uh, its limit. I mean, once you're sta- once you're ceasing to get productivity gains from that larger debt burden, 
that's when you that's when you can say you've reached that threshold. I mean, you, the West has very much hit that in in a lot of ways, um, despite the fact of being you know at the frontier and cutting edge of all kinds of technologies. It's just a bigger. I think it's. I mean, obviously, there's. You're right to point out that like there's all kinds of you know domains in which there um st- there's still um, huge payoffs from investments, but there's like just the major jet debt to GDP ratio is the and and its relationship to productivity gains is the way to look at it. I think the overall picture to, to look at it. I see. So debt is the, the the weight of debt is is a limit to productivity. It's not necessarily the infrastructure isn't there or the skills aren't there. It's just that the 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 productivity gains you know um, aren't going to be realized with this tremendous debt that the country is facing right now, which is why it seems that um, she in particular has has been making efforts to curb that. And um, I think over the last half of year, half of the year, I think it's been brought down by two and a half percent, the, you know, the volume of credit being uh, as represent, you know, as a volume of GDP, it has fallen over the last period. But I, I don't and know. I think what, Pedersen, Pedersen, Klein think that it should have stopped like in 2010 or something. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah, I mean, so what prevented them? I mean, is this a question of just the entrenchment of interests and and that bureaucratic privilege that we talked about, or was it a miscalculation on the part of? I'm not. Sure. I don't know enough about Chinese politics and stuff, but it seems like they. It's such a deeply, you know, entrenched both model and way of satisfying two major constituencies, which is workers and the the managers and um, party officials right i mean both basically win from um continuing to borrow and build and you know reversing that dynamic is difficult but it seems like they've they've started to curtail their their expansion of debt which is to say not to say that debt has stopped you know growing it's just the rate of growth of debt has has declined and um you know over the longer term there'll be a smaller debt to gdp ratio yeah. going forward over the next decade. So between this, you know, phases three and four, which is basically between the realization of this um, problem of a debt overhang to the possibility to, to a phase four, which is in the present, in which we're consider where we will consider the degree to which the CCP will be able to get out of this problem and uh, achieve this strategy or plan of dual circulation, and how well they're going to be able to, to, to you know, sort of return wealth or uh, um, increase the amount of um, funding to Chinese households and create a larger um, sop of effective demand in China. They consider the changing nature of the um, imbalances with the rest of the world and how in a lot of ways, although it hasn't, in a lot of ways these have deepened in terms of creating structural imbalances with the rest of the world in terms of its um, trade surplus, mm-hmm. um, it's there are indications that it's helped. It's definitely helped improve China's position because of the way that the trade surplus in manufacturing goods has increased over the last 10 years. Before, you know, I remember when 2008 crisis happened and many people were talking about the possibility of a, um, you know, stronger China or China taking over. One of the major refrains was like the fact that, yeah, um, yeah, China's growing 
very quickly, but it's really just the assembler of the world. It really is just taking in all of the manufacturing components and inputs of various other firms and then using cheap Chinese labor to assemble the components there and then sending them off, which would mean that a very low amount of value is added by Chinese firms since it's just the labor. But actually what's happened um, over the course of the last decade and 15 years is um, the trade surplus in manufacturing goods has gotten a lot larger than it was in 2008, both in absolute and relative terms with the rest of the world. So in 2004, total manufactured imports in China was 23% of GDP. Now it's only 10% of GDP. Or actually, that 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 figure comes from 2018, so it could be it could be even lower now. So this is very good for China because it means that it's um, you know contributing a lot a lot larger percentage of the value of exports to the rest of the world. In the early 2000s, two thirds of the value of Chinese exports came from abroad, um, but today most value now comes from Chinese labor and capital. The story of China is merely an assembler of the world, where low-wage Chinese labor merely assembles advanced components made elsewhere no longer captures reality. And Chinese domestic capacity has gotten better at satisfying Chinese needs. Imports of finished manufactured goods dropped from, from 9% in 2004 to 5% in 2020. And so made in, the Made in China 2025 plan, you know, aims to accelerate this with the, you know, added, you know, attempt to achieve dual circulation. But I think the Pettis and Klein expect this is going to, the Made in 2025, Made in China 2025 plan is going to increase the trade surplus, and they're worried about that. Well, they're, they're, worried, about, they're worried about it. Why? Because they, they don't believe that it's, there's, a, again, is this a question of consumption being suppressed among households and there's going to be a uh, you know overcapacity burden shifted to the rest of the world is that the idea yeah 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 i mean one thing i i was going to ask you about was uh you know you're you're talking about import substitution i wonder to what extent this created a buffer against the the tariff war that trump tried to ratchet up in 2019 do they say anything about that well, they say that the tariffs didn't work. I mean, I think this book was written in 2020, right? So um, they had enough whatever data and um, information to have a you know basic you know balance sheet on on that. And I mean, most economic experts said it wasn't going to work. Yeah. Most people, basically, on left and most of the right, were critical of it because of the way it didn't really correctly perceive the role of intermediate parts and goods, right? In the the, the, the role of global trade. Um, but, um, you know, the Chinese, yeah, as you're suggesting, have effectively substituted the domestic production of intermediate parts, um, even as this raised some of the costs for Chinese consumers. So um, throughout imports, meaning imports of intermediate goods, things, you know, components for making machines or making finished goods. Um, those imports have become less and less important in the Chinese economy since the, since like the mid 2000s. Right. Because they can um, go it alone. They're, they're independently creating this themselves. Yeah. Yeah. To a greater degree, you know, not entirely, but it depends on this or that. It's all kinds of stuff we don't know about, but um, I mean, to a greater degree, they're able to do, to produce things on their own. 
Now they have another little bit about like kind of um, global governance, the role of the and the degree to which um, China obeys the rules of the WTO mm-hmm, and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, they basically give China a, 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 a pass or whatever, but expect that it will start to break the rules going forward. Um, and so what this has to do with is, you know, I mean, oftentimes people just talk about, they just flippantly or glibly like say they're not, they're breaking the rules of, you know, of, uh, uh, of, you know, international commerce or something like that. But what that's about basically is whether or not Chinese, the Chinese, um, give preferential treatment to Chinese companies, right? And then that's what so much of trade agreements are about and about the, the, the rules of arbitration, um, about what, you know, when there's a disagreement about whether, um, in a local market, uh, uh, um, the, you know, a company from that nation is preferred over, an international competitor. That's a huge part of it, right? And so they're saying that CCP and and this sort of form of corporate governance is very likely to be unfavorable to international business because the CCP will the CCP does have many members embedded in Chinese companies and corporations and they can always, you know, give a signal for executives to simply be told to pick Chinese suppliers over foreign ones. And so there's this, they, they, they expect, and obviously they have seen as well, that this can allow the Chinese to pursue a modernized version of List's national, um, national system for a time, even while appearing to be living under the, the, the terms of, of globalization. This is, you're talking about, this is the same list that we talked about in one of the first episodes, right? And who was, right. uh, maybe. Of cultivating national industry, that idea of, you know harnessing investment towards building up the you know core components of a of a national industrial base yeah i I just want to make sure i understand i mean what what is the what's the harm in this model i mean of executives sure that you know executives these top companies are stacked with ccp members and they'll privilege chinese companies over foreign competition but china has every right to do that what's the I mean, well, what's the they don't have every right according to free trade agreements. I see. So it's really it's it's this question of the rules based order and whether China will adhere to it. That's but right. that's right, the rules based order. Yeah, I mean, that's what the, that, that Anthony Blinken loves to <laughs> loves to right. to talk about. Yeah, no, but I mean, there are there are um, agreements that they um, they signed or whatever. Um, it's all it's all you know. We're speaking very sort of abstractly about it. Be interesting to find a, a kind of a, a real good study on this because so much of this these issues are just covered over with pablum of like cliches about yeah, that's the stuff. That's what I mean, yeah. But but um, I you know it, it's you know it's a, it's a it's a big you know issue if you're going to do business in that part of the world whether or not you're going to you're going to get you're going to be subject to an unf- unfavorable business environment. But but again, to, this is to the point that. Uh, I mean, it's it's, mo- it's not bad for China. It's if they not do bad that, for China, that, right? Because because I'm thinking about it as like a, another buffer against potential trade wars in the future. So as the Chinese um, try to lessen the the extent of the debt overhang that they face, they have this dilemma of whether or not this tightening of credit is going to create the danger of leading to a decline of productive activity and loss and create unemployment, rather than help continue to contribute to a internal rebalancing, you know, by which they're able to basically rely on domestic demand to, to absorb a lot of the goods that are produced in China. And right. 
you know, in a way, Belt and Road Initiative is a outgrowth of this because it's able to kind of, you know, create demand for Chinese exports and con- and especially construction services in other countries, building infrastructure based on often money that those countries borrow from China. It's a sort of, you could say it's a kind of foreign policy component or foreign policy outgrowth of this growth model that we've been talking about. Yeah. So somebody might hear that and they'll go back to the, the discussion on J.A. Hobson and they'll ask you, I mean, not to get academic on this, but how is that different from the model of the British imperialists looking for external markets to offload their overcapacity? It's not that different, really. I mean, but the, the, the question is the degree of control that the, you know, Chinese and um, other companies and the terms on which this is agreed on, agreed upon. I mean, you can't, you can't just build stuff for free, right? I mean, you can to a certain degree, but that's not the, that's not the orientation of their foreign policy. But they, it seems like the Chinese have tended to make agreements where they'll operate and uh, acquire fees for operating certain infrastructure for a period of time in order to get it paid back. Um, that's one method. And, um, you know, it's, it, the question really is, is how onerous are the, um, the terms of terms repayment? Of repayment yeah. Compared to say the way the IMF operated in Latin America, or if you read a book like Confessions of an Economic Hitman, is it is it exactly the same? And, all, and are the Chinese also assassinating people for not signing on the dotted line? <laughs> I mean that that's a big difference too. Yeah, no, I I, I mean I'm playing devil's advocate here because no, of course on, I know, on I know, the surface yeah. it looks you know you you can understand why some you know idiot would <laughs> start to talk about Chinese imperialism on this basis of you know, uh, loans to Sri Lanka or Ethiopia, developing infrastructure in these places where it was completely rapacious in the case of the British imperialists in 19th century. You know, that the, if you look at uh, French colonialism or French imperialism in, in Haiti, right? I mean, Haiti was still repaying its, uh, you know, its indemnities through, what, like 100 years later? Or just you know yeah I think so you know fifty yeah. you know like fifty years ago I yeah think. hundred years later yeah hundred years yeah, later yeah. or something like that so this is this is a question of in- infrastructural development which is actually positive for these places that aren't connected to the world market China understands that it needs to be able to create I think some protection from any sapping up of external demand from the United States where obviously there are some tensions right or from other places of the developed world. There is a need, right? They're, I think they're investing on mutual need, both for yeah. connections to the external market, you know, within places like Ethiopia, where there was a funding of, uh, I think, a train line from, you know, within the uh, inland of Africa to Djibouti and ports there. There's definitely infrastructural development that is based on mutual need. And and I think it's wise. It's not so much a question of imperial imperial exploitation as much as a question of rebalancing. Yeah, I mean, the problem, though, is that it... Um, I mean, I totally agree with you about the, the mutually beneficial nature of it, um, but it does reproduce some of the problems of the domestic economy with the, you know, with its overexpansion of credit and encourages overborrowing abroad to pay for big projects and doesn't like, you know, create the mechanism for a good management of good and bad projects. Right. So, so Pettison, you're, 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 this is Pettison Klein's argument as well, that it doesn't solve yeah, the problem of credit in, uh, you know, out of control credit creation. Right. And and also because these are, these are expanding into, 
you know, basically, you know, third world areas. So they're not going to be able to, you know, create an expansion of demand to the same extent as existed in, say, the United, let's say, exists in the United States. So if it, in the context of the um, ever increasing trade war, it's not going to be able to rely on, you know, trade relations with Djibouti to offset, you know, the, you know, a tariff in the United States. So all in all, their outlook is pretty pessimistic. I mean, it's they, they say there's true promise in the creation of external demand for Chinese goods, but ultimately they believe that they're just too, there's too much risk involved. And if they lose access to these external markets, it's going to affect the sustainability of the Chinese economy, and eventually the other shoe is going to have to drop. Mm-hmm. And so they have a statement here, like, as long as China has debt capacity and, and its government is willing to use it, trade wars can be withstood. And I think what that means is that as long as they can rely on debt, they're not going to, they're going to offset whatever happens, whatever loss of demand or access to demand they lose in a trade war. And will encourage additional borrowing to finance increasingly unproductive investments or possibly household debt. Yeah. And so household debt as a way of generating uh, uh, demand is very different from, you know, tra- uh, transfers of wealth to households, right? Pettison Klein finished the um, China chapter with a section called Stage 4, the Spirit of 78. And by Spirit of 78, they mean the spirit of Deng Xiaoping's reforms in 78 and nice, um, nice willingness to, <laughs> to liberalize, um, reform the system. But also, you know, more importantly, they, they think that back then, and this is obviously the case, Chinese debt levels were very low. Mm-hmm. And so they, they want a willingness to um, reform and offset this huge debt overhang problem. And that's I think that's what they mean by spirit of 78. You could you know put it this way, we've described all these sort of parameters and, and issues related to how you know trade imbalances, um, the growth model that China's had, how that's um, you know um, sort of led it to a situation in which it has this problem or conundrum of how the drawdown of debt might um, create problems of social stability and create economic problems like rising unemployment, um, decline in productive um, investment and productive activity, while also having to manage the transfer of wealth to households as the Chinese political system is pursuing this strategy of dual circulation. Now, it seems pretty clear, given you know the continuities between the Trump and Biden administrations, that China's trade surplus could come under more stress. I mean, I think Chinese, you know, interdependence and trade relationships around the world have actually strengthened through the pandemic, but there's no reason for it to not expect that um, their trade surplus could come under, come under threat. And so the question is, how do you, how long can China trade rising domestic indebtedness for lower unemployment? Um, how can it remove, how can it deal with the challenge of um, its, you know, coming close to its debt capacity without leading to a, you know, a huge um, collapse in GDP and surge in unemployment. Right. And so they think, you know, basically there has to be a kind of a, redu- a reduction in the com- the country's reliance on um, on investment spending um, and a raising of domestic consumption and radically altering the distribution of wealth within China. 
And the way they think that needs to happen is a recognition of the fact that, well, for one, tons of China's growth has happened because of this debt. And we're likely to see much lower levels of growth in the near future. And what has to happen is a kind of, for, for this to be you know, effective, there has to be a conditions under which basically the expansion of household income uh, will need to exceed the rate of increase of GDP. That, that's what would be a, a big indication. And in order for that to happen, there needs to be reforms like we've been talking about. There needs to be like you know, reform of the Hukou system, if I'm saying that right. You're, you nailed it. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Tax re- tax reform, along the lines we suggested before, we, we were we were highlighting how regressive the Chinese tax system is. So the huge, um, you know, sticking point or huge issue of contention in Chinese politics will be tax reform, legalization of unions, um, other things like that are going to help contribute to a transfer of wealth to household income. Yeah, it's sort of like um, I don't know. It reminds me of maybe a slogan: socialism with Keynesian characteristics or something like that although they would probably be fine with the socialist characteristics withering away under this model i don't think they're ideological in that sense or defensive of any any of the political characteristics of china after the the revolution but that's not their job here their job is to understand the imbalances and what would solve for it um, mm-hmm. you have to read somebody like aaron beninov to get the, the the marxist critique of this which is the um you critique of how maybe illusionistic it is to believe that Chinese elites will reform their thinking and behavior along these lines, or that Mm -hmm. the United States would sacrifice its privileges among its financial elites to stop buying into this model and being welcoming, you know, um, you know, or or, uh, being willful um, participants in this model. Uh, He says, you know, don't look so much to the elites as you will the as you should the the working class. So Aaron Beninov's work, I mean, Aaron Beninov should come on the show. Can we get him on the show? Maybe you can talk about his, try, yeah, his article so. on World Symmetry yeah. from New Left Review. But I think there's an important critique there. Uh, but all said and done, we've come back to this before. They're, they're essentially Keynesians, right? I mean, it's the... Yeah, and, and then Aaron's criticism, too, of also is like, you know, that they have this idea of a international tax that's going to be the basis of this too. I mean, so it's also the coordinating mechanism of that, which is more utopian. Hey, Mara, good thing- job. Hey, Mara, good job. We're done <laughs> with you. this book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're done. You wanted to be done. No, no. Did you have another thought? Um, well, I was I was revving up to it. Um, no, but the issue of you know whether or not um, there could be a transfer of income from elites, you know, in provincial and municipal government and municipal um, or. Uh, Never mind. That's a wrap. <laughs> That's how we're gonna leave it. Ma- no, they won't. Mario, Mario can at least stumble through it, but damn. I can, I can, I can. I'm falling asleep while I'm speaking. <laughs> you can tell that, right? Like there's like there's that aspect where you're doing that, and then you realize you're doing it, and then you can't stop. You know? <laughs> yeah. I hate that. Well, Tom, do you want to just end by reading the the last paragraph of uh, chapter chapter four? As China's economy continues to slow, the central government in Beijing will necessarily forge a new relation with China's various elite groups. New institutions will be created that will determine the nature of Chinese economic growth over the rest of the century. What that new relation and those new institutions will look like is anyone's guess. The best outcome is that income shifts from the elite to ordinary households. This is the rebalancing that should, in principle, 
reduce China's need to force its deficient domestic demand onto the rest of the world. Brava, brava. Thank God. Oh man, Pedersen Klein, you guys、oh. are great. But Mario, don't make me read it. It's a little bit、hour. outside of our wheelhouse. Yeah,